Welcome to the Nahrain Network podcast series. Today we're with Professor Graham Barker of Cambridge University, Senior Research Fellow of the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research, Fellow at the St John's College, University of Cambridge, a Fellow at the British Academy. How are you? I'm fine. And I'm also, as I said, Disney Professor of Archaeology Emeritus, which is the main professorship in, in some ways, and it's one of the oldest in the, in the UK. You're an archaeologist, you've worked on the Italian Bronze Age, Roman occupation of Libya and landscape archaeology, but now you're looking at Iraq and you're looking at a very important site in northern Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about that site? Yeah, just a bit of background first. I mean, we said Italian, I started in Italian prehistory, I actually came to this college, St John's, to do classics, changed to archaeology. So I worked on Italian prehistory first, then I worked in Libya, um, I worked in Jordan, I worked in, in Malaysia, in Sarawak, in the rainforest. I suppose I'm best known for working on interdisciplinary projects that look at landscape change through time. So I've worked a lot with colleagues who are work on different periods of the past and with uh, work on things like geography, geology, uh, environmental approaches, because the one theme that's interested me is how do, how do people shape environment and how do environment shape people? And that interest... Um, one reason I was attracted in, in the latter part of my career, I mean, I've worked a lot on things like the origins of agriculture and later um, questions of impact of people on environment. More recently, I've been really interested in the whole questions of our own species and, and coming out of Africa, what kind of behaviours did we develop that made us in the end a global species from an African species. Why, you know, able to um, move into tropical rainforests, deserts, cross oceans and so on. So that was actually what took me to famous cave in Borneo in uh, Sarawak, which was excavated in the 1950s and 60s. And so we went back to that. And then it took me to a cave in North Africa in Libya called the Haafateh, which is excavated by a Cambridge archaeologist in the 1950s. And that's got a long, long sequence of 150,000 years of, of people living in the cave and therefore what that told us about the long-term relationships between people and climate. And from that, that then took us... I was invited by the Kurdistan regional government to think about going back to re-excavate Shanidar Cave, and um, which was also excavated in the 1950s. And I absolutely jumped at it because... It is one of the most famous archaeological sites in the world from excavations by Professor Ralph Selecki of Columbia University in America. Um, between 1951 and 1960, he carried out a series of major excavations in the cave. He excavated a trench that was about 15 metres deep. Um, and he got a long, long sequence again of occupation. But why the site is most is so well known is he found in the lower part of it a series of Neanderthal skeletal remains. And I'm deliberately avoiding the use of the word burial because he argued that some of these, about 10 Neanderthals, men, women and children, and he argued that some of them had probably been killed in roof fall, rocks coming down from the roof of the cave, but that others had been buried with formal burial rites. And his findings and his arguments have been discussed 
specifically from Shanidar, ever since. And they're part of a much bigger debate about how similar or different were Neanderthals to our own species, Homo sapiens. Um, and therefore, in particular, did Neanderthals bury their dead, which takes all sorts of connotations about did they think about death like we did? Did they have any sense of what was happening after death and so on? So Shanidar Cave has been at the heart of these debates about how similar or different were Neanderthals to modern humans ever since. Um, and so he also found, uh, he didn't find fossils, but he found archaeology of modern humans above Neanderthals. So again, in terms of the big, big debate about why did Neanderthals eventually die out and why are there no Neanderthals today and why we're here and we're modern human, or anatomically modern human, Homo sapiens. Big, big debates about why Neanderthals become extinct and our species at the same sort of time becomes the global species. Shanidar, again, because it is one of the few sites which has got a Neanderthal archaeology followed by modern human archaeology. So again, it seemed really attractive to go back both to look at these questions about how did Neanderthals live and die, and then also what happened to Neanderthals and, and, and the whole question of why did they disappear and our own species replace them. And you've been working on it for about four years now? I mean, the original invitation was about 2011, and I came out a couple of times and you know, to discuss it with the Antiquities Directorate and so on. We actually started in 2014, but we weren't able to really start excavations then. We did survey around the site, and then we, all, we then came back again at the time of the ISIS attack in August 2014. So we weren't able to really start excavating the site until 2015. And we've been back a couple of times in 2015, 2016, and once in 2017, once in 2018. When I applied, there are a lot of questions about what Ralph Selecki found. And one of the reasons that I and this group of colleagues, particularly geographers and environmental scientists, went back to the cave, the cave in Borneo, which is critical for debates about modern humans expanding into Southeast Asian Australia, and then to the cave in Libya, and now Shanidar, is we've got a huge range of archaeological science today that wasn't available then. And so there are many questions about what Ralph Selecki found. And so we wanted, well, when we first went back, I mean, one of the key things is at that time, the only method for dating these old sites was radiocarbon dating, dating things like charcoal and bone. And that method went back about 40,000 years. And Selecki, therefore, was able to date about four or five metres down of this 15, 14 metre sequence, down to 40,000 years. He had a series of radiocarbon dates very early in the method. And beyond that, he just had to guess the ages by various ideas about how long the sediments might have accumulated. So it was pure guesswork. And the Neanderthals, therefore, were not, they weren't dated. Um, I mean, they were very loosely dated to sort of um, I mean, the, the, the latest ones were kind of just below his top radiocarbon date, so he sort of around, he thought, well, perhaps around 45, 50,000. So the archaeology was largely undated, and in particular, we had no real understanding of the climates in which these Neanderthals and modern humans lived. So all these debates, one of the common ideas about Neanderthals is they died out because they couldn't cope with the rapidly changing and deteriorating climates where we turned out to be much more successful. Because in the hardest, 
They disappear in Europe about 40,000 years ago. It's probably around then they disappear in Southwest Asia, uh, including Shanidar, that sort of time. And 40,000 years ago, modern humans are in Australia by then and they're in Siberia and you know, able to, to, to deal with all sorts of ferociously difficult environments. So that was the wider context. And so when the original permit, what I said I wanted to do was, was to, to clean out the, the backfill in the trench of the Selecki, expose part of the Selecki, the walls of his trench, and take lots of soil samples and samples for these new methods of dating we now have. So try and work, first of all, try and work out where the Neanderthals were, where the modern human levels were, recognise them, and then get dating samples to be able to date when they were, and equally get lots of samples for the different sorts of analyses to work out what the climate was like. So that's what I hoped to do, was to end up with a, a climatic sequence in the cave, which we could map to the climate sequences that are known um, for the whole world, in particular from ice cores in Greenland. That's the main climate records going back millions of years. And so what I wanted was to try to work out what the climate was like when Neanderthals were there, what the climate was like when the modern humans were there, um, if possible to date the, 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 when the Neanderthals were being buried there, and also get information about the behaviour of Neanderthals, the behaviour of modern humans, again, which was, um, again, with a lot of the methods, microscopic techniques that weren't available in Selecki's time. In fact, he, only, he died a couple of weeks ago, aged 101, and he's been incredibly supportive all the way through to us going back. And... And um, so we, that, that was the context. What I never really thought is that we'd find more Neanderthal bones. Um, and that was really the big surprise of going back. I mean, I, I thought with luck we'd work out where he found these bones and then we'd be able to date from the sediments where, what, when they were. But we, we've been able to show, we've we found remains of one of the upper burials that he found which he knew he hadn't got all of it it's called Shanidar number five and we dated that to about 50,000 years ago and then a couple of years ago we, we've got deeper down into his trench and we've, we could see human bone in the cleaned wall of his trench that we left and then it was slightly damaged by visitors to the cave, although we protected everything, so it, it, we therefore had to. We, we therefore decided it was much better, safer to excavate it. So last year, we did an excavation of these lower bones, and they they date about eighty thousand years ago. And I think we've shown to our satisfaction, and we had a an international workshop in January here in Cambridge to look at our data, um, because lo a lot of the experts have always said. Neanderthals didn't bury their dead generally and they didn't do it at Shanidar and other people said yes they did and so on so we had all the, the both the believers and non-believers together at the workshop and I think everybody was pretty convinced that what we've got there is um, part of a group of Neanderthals that Selecki found um, and it's a pretty unique in the whole of Neanderthal archaeology, a whole sort of cluster of these bodies and we've got remains of a, we've got the skull and an upper body of a Neanderthal adult, we don't yet know whether it's male or female, um, and it was lying crouched on the ground. Um, and that's going to be the basis for a huge range of studies, you know, ancient DNA and diet and so on. It's, it's an amazing just, opportunity. The, the, the bones you found, was there anything else that you found, tools, um, tools that they use at the time? Well, in, in this particular case, 
the, the body's lying down on its side with its hands up by its, by its head. And between the upper arm and the shoulder is a single flint blade. Uh, and we're trying to work out, you know, I mean, has it, mo- has it simply moved from an occupation layer above and it's got nothing to do with the body? Or was the individual holding it? Or was it, you know, in the, in the body? I mean, the thing's very, very fragmented. Um, so that's it's still an, an open question. So we do find the occupation evidence. I mean, basically, what you find in these sorts of sites is is the the rubbish they threw away, which basically means the stone tools that they used for hunting and the the kind of chipping debris from when they're sharpening the tools and repairing them, and the bits of animal bones from the animals they hunted and chopped up and broke the bones up for marrow and so on and so forth and shells that they collected i mean plant foods that they plant remains they collected so the the burials themselves um are, are quite unique anyway it does look in this case that it, in fact it looks like there are two bodies there and so it's unfinished business which is another clear reason for us asking to continue with the permit there but it looks like from what we saw two years ago that there's another body or remains of a body underneath this one and they're definitely in a scoop that has been made by people the microscopic studies show that it's not like a a scoop from you know water flowing and that it's undoubtedly neanderthals have dug a hole or a scoop and they've put perhaps these two bodies in and there are stones on top which we can show I think again to the satisfaction of these both the believing and the doubting experts at the workshop that they're not part of the rock fall that they're they're placed there so it does look like they really are thinking because some people have also said well there are those who said Neanderthals never buried their dead and and then others have said well they might have done but they probably did it just for hygienic reasons you know to if a body's smelling to stick it in a hole to keep predators away um but not the idea of of actually burials we would understand i should say actually the most famous burial of shanidar is known as the flower burial and that's what everybody every first year student taking archaeology anywhere in the world will know about the flower burial at shanidar and what happened is soil samples were taken from around the body very, I mean, about a metre away from where we've been digging this last season. In the soil was fossil pollen of flowers, and the person who analysed it was very cautious about what it might be because she suggested it's possible that it, it could just be brought in by burrowing animals. And in the end, she, she thought about these reasons, but suggested but it, perhaps it's more likely that, it, it, that they were flowers with the body. And Ralph Selecki... Um, took that and said great and in fact the main book he wrote on the whole whole thing is called The Flower People it was all in the mid you know in the 70s when he was writing like that and and there was this idea therefore of the body being buried with a whole clutch of flowers which are the flowers that grow around the site in in spring Um, anyway one of we've done a lot of studies of how pollen gets into the cave and how pollen gets carried down from the surface down in the around and we've looked in detail at the pollen which is very poorly preserved in the sediments around these bodies and also in in the sediments inside animal burrows 
and and in the end it it looked very very unlikely unfortunately that that they they did bury a body with flowers there's no other evidence to suggest that there might be they might have engaged in rituals well that i mean there are other sites i mean they're increasingly the the more we learn about neanderthals i mean the the more complex i mean they, if you look at very very you know like 19th century books they're shown as you know like almost like ape men um their brains were actually slightly bigger than ours. Um, they were clearly highly complex. There's a whole series of exhibitions where you get reconstructions of Neanderthals. And if you were sitting on the underground in London, there was a Neanderthal next to you, you wouldn't have noticed. I mean, the, the, so the physical features were not that different. Although the skulls have got particular prominent features, actually, um, they... They're, 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 they're different from modern humans, but we also now know from the genetics that there was um, some interbreeding, probably, probably in the, the Levant and the Iraq, Iran, Syria, Israel, Lebanon, that whole area. Probably that's where modern humans and Neanderthals were in the same sort of area for the longest period. We've all got about, I, mean, I think it's about 5% Neanderthal DNA in us. And that comes from this interbreeding long, long ago. And we just know that there, there are caves in Israel where there are some modern human fossils that go back pretty much 120,000 years ago, which is mostly when people think that modern humans came out of Africa because the world climate was more benign then. It was at least as warm and humid as today and slightly more. So anyway, they date to about then. So it looks like modern humans came out of Africa into this eastern Mediterranean area. And also Neanderthals, who were up in Europe all the time, as a, as um, it looks like they came down because they've got other sites with Neanderthals at the same sort of age now we have we have no idea and we're probably you know we're dealing with tiny population tiny amounts of evidence i should say and probably tiny populations over a huge area over a huge time scale you know we can't really talk about i mean did they encounter each other often and so on and so forth but but whereas in europe it looks like neanderthals and modern humans if they overlap they only lap by a few thousand years whereas in the near east in the broader sense southwest asia going into the zagros um, there's every possibility that they were both in the same region from over 100,000 years ago to when Neanderthals disappeared 50, 40,000 years ago. So there's 50,000 years at least when the two species could have encountered each other. And does the Shenandoah cave tell us anything about this transition? Is Selecki thought there was a hiatus, a gap of about 10,000 years between the, the Neanderthal archaeology and the burials and the modern human archaeology. One of the difficulties is, when I say modern human archaeology, it's the kind of stone tools that we think were made by modern humans because there are similar sorts of industries elsewhere in the Near East and in Europe. Um, but most sites, of course, haven't got human fossils with them. And so, anyway, what we've shown at, at Shanidar so far is, is there really isn't a hiatus. It does look as if the, near, the modern human archaeology really is there from immediately after or possibly 
during the time of the latest Neanderthals. It's we're 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 trying to sort out the dating and the stratigraphy at the moment because these are very big issues in the debates. But the new technique, I mean, the techniques have been developed for getting ancient DNA out of bones. Um, and it's very difficult, particularly in the most successful work has always been done in places like Siberia and Alaska, where, where things are constantly cold and dry. That's the best survival of ancient DNA. Whereas in our sorts of environments or somewhere like Kurdistan, where it's getting very hot, very cold, very hot, very cold, it's you know hopeless for survival for DNA. So we'll be really lucky if the labs that are trying to get it get DNA out. They tried on the bones from this upper skeleton and didn't manage, but they're trying from the bones from the lower skeleton. There are new techniques that they've developed for also getting ancient DNA out of the soil, out of the sediments. And so, obviously, in principle, the sediment that's in the lower part of the trench, where the Neanderthal bones are, the environmental DNA, it's called, the, the human DNA that can be in the sediments, ought to be Neanderthal. And the DNA that is in the upper sediments ought to be us, modern human, even though there aren't the bones. So that's, in a sense, that's the neat expectation that, that Neanderthals are down there, and if there's other DNA in the sediment, it's theirs. And then there's a nice break except we've shown it's, it's a kind of, it seems to be not much of a break and might even not be, you know, and might be overlapping. Um, and, then, and then we get modern humans. But theoretically, as I said, in, given that we know that modern humans and Neanderthals are around towards the Mediterranean, near these sites in, in Israel in particular, f over this 120,000 years to 50,000 years, then we we can't assume that there were only Neanderthals in these early periods up in the Zagros. Just the same, we can't assume, therefore, that Neanderthals weren't you know, lasting on until about 40,000, which would take us into this archaeology. So all of that, I mean, that's, in a way, that's the context of us us applying for the a next stage of a permit. In a way, we, we've we've got a long way with where we were first. But like all research, you know, you end up answering some questions and you realise as a result of that, you, you, you result in, you realise there are even more interesting questions that you've never even thought of. I mean, this kind of archaeology, I mean, in a way, perfectly naturally, the, the, you know, the Director General of Antiquities will say, well, kind of, okay, so tell me how you've solved the, you know, why did Neanderthals disappear question. Um, and and it, you know, it's not quite as simple as that, as he knows. Um, that, and, and it's the same really with all archaeology. The, in a way, the easy, quick bit is digging it up. It's then what happens. And we've had a lot of materials come back to the UK for laboratory analysis. So innumerable you know, bags of soil go to all sorts of labs for different purposes. Um, and then we've got various things have come back to get studied, I mean, in, in the advanced laboratories, and they you know, they go back to Kurdistan. So it's a good relationship like that because it's what happens afterwards, is is most of what these storytelling is about. Um, you know, the, in the end, it's the science, archaeological science. Is it, it starts with incredibly careful excavation processes. Um, and it, and it, it's what happens in the lab you know, takes enormous amounts of time. This skull, I mean, it, it basically had the consistency of sort of mashed up digestive biscuits. 
I mean, it's fragmentary, small thing. We had to consolidate it. Well, Emma Pomeroy will make CT scans of the fragments, and then she'll reassemble digitally the skull, and and eventually the could be a process one would hope that the skull itself can be physically put back together and it should end up back in Kurdistan um, but the DNA I mean the DNA is I mean there are 50 people in a laboratory in Copenhagen looked for DNA unsuccessfully in the first fragment they're trying again now and it's so it's trying to get also that that it really is like a um, an iceberg in the sense where you see at the top the field work and what goes on after just you know takes takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money, and a lot of clever people, which is why you do get you know short articles in Nature, which change the way we think about the past, which have got fifty names on and they're three pages. And Shanida is going to generate those sorts of things again. Um, so it's a, and it's also a very very slow process. In some ways, the attractive thing I said this is the third cave, and there never was a grand plan to go to these three caves. It sort of went from one to the other, but the three people who excavated in the fifties, and in one case into the sixties, excavated on a scale we could never possibly think about, and we would never go about now digging a fifteen meter deep hole. I mean, you can drop a house into it. Um, in terms of you know the modern scientific exploration is so slow, so we could never. But there's a scale of information that they got. Um, in a sense, they lost a lot because of the scale that they dug. Um, in fact, Selecki used dynamite a lot because it's so full of huge rocks. Um, and we can we dig at a tiny scale, um, and it's incredibly slow. And in the case of Shanidar. Well, it's the same the te same technique we used at the Halfatir cave in Libya. Um, every bag of soil, every bag that's that's from an archaeological context, that's that's you know ancient soil, gets put in bags. It gets taken down the hill. It gets washed in a flotation system that we've got. It washes out the organic materials that come here, and they go to two labs in in Liverpool, and we end up then with the residues which are sieved through and picked on, so half the team are in the cave and half the team are sitting there hour by hour by hour by hour down at the dig house at the site, picking out things from these washed residues because the goal is to pick out, to lose nothing that's, well, to, to pick out everything that's two millimetres in size or above. So. You know, that's not digging with dynamite and, and it's incredibly slow but as a result of that we've got things like we've got fish bones of I mean the Neanderthals were clearly f collecting fishing big fish down in the river um, at this cave in Libya we've got tiny little shells that are perforated shells beads and there are similar sorts of things emerging from Shanidar you'd never find those with the techniques earlier so it's incredibly slow and incredibly laborious. But as a result, when these projects work well, the old work informs the new and the new work informs the old. Because we end up, in a way, taking a small amount of data and squeezing it incredibly hard. Um, and that provides all sorts of new insights, qualities of data that informs the huge collections that these early excavations got. Um, but again, in the end, we're often talking about you know a trench that's two meters by one meter, 
um, it's what we did at the Libyan cave, down 15 metres or whatever, a tiny cave there, and, and whereas the excavator there dug a hole the size of the one in, in Shanidar, and all the finds, in fact, are in, in Cambridge, millions of things. And so when these things work well, we can build on that scale of information they got with the quality of information that we've got. And they talk to each other, the project. So that's why we have people working on the old material as well as new materials. So we've re-looked at the Shanidar, the Seleki finds. So it isn't just the, the bones that are in Baghdad. We'd like to look at the stone tools, the animal bones and so on. So we try to look at the old material in new ways, look at what they found as well and get as much as we can from the new. So that it's a, it's a complicated relationship and it's expensive and slow. But people often think you know, that the digging is, the, is what it's all about. Um, and that's the bit that often people want to pay for. We have the same problems in this country. You know, it's, it's digging it up. Digging it up is a tiny fraction of, of what happens. And you're part of a team. You're going to Iraq tomorrow. What is your programme in Iraq? Oh, we're, we're going back now, really, just to discuss with the Director of Antiquities the proposed new work. He came with some of his staff to this workshop in Cambridge at the end of January. So, And that was all about looking at the results of the five years of work at the site in this international critical context these international experts so he's perfectly well aware of what we've achieved like that in 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 four or five days all looking in detail at all the material and so we're now going to go back I'm going back with one of my collaborators as Professor Chris Hunt who's at Liverpool John Moores University who's overseen all the environmental work of the project critical environmental work so anyway we're going back with all the documentation and to sit down with the director and the staff just to talk about to try and frame out the the nature of a of a next five years of of work and then obviously it's a formal procedure that eventually ends up if 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 it's allowed it's a ministerial permit and the next stage is obviously it starts from september onwards yeah we'd like to be starting september and that's for, the number one priority is is clearly to excavate these fairly vulnerable bones that are underneath the adult that we found and say we found the upper half from the the chest and so on uh, or the the ribs and upper body and the arms and the head and what we don't know is whether the bones underneath are the same individual dr emma pomeroy who's who's the bioarchaeologist working on it she's convinced when we, we first saw them there is a second individual underneath but it's part of where it's actually when where selecki found the flower burial is right by where we are what actually happened is he, he was never it was never really clear exactly what he found, so we're not yet clear precisely that they were they've all given given numbers. So I said we found the upper barrels were number one and number five and number three, um, and the lower barrels were were in these particular with four, six, eight, and nine. What actually happened is he, having found the flower burial, they they encased a block of sediment in planks and plaster put it on the roof of a taxi and drove it from Chanidar to Baghdad for an excavation to excavate it there, by which time, of course, it was pretty disturbed. And so trying to work out precisely which individuals, how many individuals there was, was complicated. And so, so it, it, it's possible that some of the interpretations um, of what they thought they'd got in this sediment may not be right. And so it's it, it, this new part of the body almost certainly belongs to this group, but it doesn't 
you, you can't neatly take a kind of lower half of a body that he found and that part that we found and stick it together. It is, you know, it's not like that. So, which is why it's really important that um, Emma Pomeroy wants to get back to Baghdad and, and look at the the Selecki and the Antitar finds there as well as the ones in the, in the States. Yeah, to try and try and see. And that's another reason for going back. Is also it's part of these debates. I mean, you can do microscopic studies now to see how they how they treated their bones. There's some there's some instances when the Antitar's practice cannibalism. There's some instances where it looks like they defleshed and then buried. There's all manner of complicated burial rites, possibilities. So it's just, you know, it's time for a, a good new look. You'll be hosting one of the British Institute for the Study of Iraq and the High Network scholar, Dilshad Mustafa, who will be coming to Cambridge. So he's the Cultural Heritage Officer, Director of Antiquities, Saran, which is where the... Yeah, we're in... Yeah. Shanidar Cave is in Saran province. Saran, which is in Erbil itself. Yeah. So you'll be working with him, but you'll be looking at different aspects of what could be a, a museum. So this is one of the suggestions to have a museum. Yes, I mean, both the the, the new director of antiquities, um, Kaifi Mustavali in Erbil and for Kurdistan, um, and also the director of antiquities of Soran province, um, Abdul Wahab Suleiman. I mean, they've, they've always been talking about um, what, how best to display the site. You know, the difficult sites... To display it's a spectacular cave wonderful landscape where it is fantastic mountain landscape it's enclosed in a fenced area a reserve that's several square kilometers it's enormously popular as a picnic site particularly by people coming out from Erbil it's a lovely day trip loads of people come to picnic when I first knew the site there were some quite sensible display panels in English Kurdish and Arabic of the Selecki work. So there was a little bit of guidance, a little bit of information about them, and they've since deteriorated in the weather. So it's the right time now, because of the work we've done as well, to display the site, I mean, it, in, and well, to manage it, because again, I mentioned you get vandalism there, people don't know, they come up, they write their names on the walls, it's fenced off, but one suspects that, you know, lads try and climb in, and it's a very deep hole. Um, so it's vulnerable. So it needs protecting, managing. I mean, it is a world-famous site. It is the oldest site in Kurdistan. It's probably the oldest site in the Zagros. It's absolutely seminal for studies of human evolution and why our species in the end is here and Neanderthals aren't. And so it's got an enormous importance for world debates about human evolution but therefore coming down to the Zagros Iraq and Kurdistan it, it's it, it's it, it's got you can wrap all sorts of stories to it including ones of course the past is never neutral you can immediately think of um, how different groups in the Zagros Kurds Iraq uh, Kurds Iraqi and so on and so forth might wish to claim the, the deep antiquity, you know, we've, we've been ever ever kind of arguments um, in these sites. Is there a guide that people could do, tourists could there, There's no guide system there. Mm-hmm. So there's, you can see, and again, it, it's quite, well, I mean, it's only two or three hours from Erbil, but in the sense, and, and of course you've got masses of tourists at this time of year, when the spring's good, it's, it's really the, you know, the school trip season and so on and so forth. When we're there... A thousand people might come on a Friday, and lots of university groups come, lots of school groups come. Did you actually go into the cave? Yeah, I mean it's just like a big, like a aircraft hangar. Really, you walk in. It's not a, 
I mean, it's not a deep, dark cave. I mean, people didn't live in, you know, you live in nice places. And this is open to the south. You know, it, it gets the sun. Um, it faces south. It, it, it's got spectacular views down in the valleys. So you can imagine when people, Neanderthals or modern humans came. I and mean, we're probably, just going back to the past, I mean, you're probably dealing with groups of 20, 30, 40 people, men, women, children, who might be there for a few weeks at a time, that they're... Um, we can see that they're 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 repairing hunting equipment. They're probably preparing skins, making skin clothing, and so on. I mean, that we we've, we've um, it's those sorts of activities, and then they move on. So they create a rather ephemeral archaeology, and also say there there are these huge big debates. Um, they're incredibly important. I mean, like you know the, the whole business of, of how similar different are they to us why did why are we here why did they die? all of these big debates but actually in the end the archaeology is very simple and rudimentary that, that's left behind in most instances it's bits of bones and bits of stone tools and so on so both how you display these things to people effectively how you display them and get across the the importance of the ideas about them to people of different ages different education levels, different backgrounds, coming from Kurdistan, Iraq, um, Western Europe, lots of, I mean, in, uh, um, there, are, there are lots and lots of tourist groups. And therefore, it, it will, what it will be good to see is a simple, good quality museum there, which really does help the public to understand what they're seeing. I should also say, that the nature's there, fabulous. We've seen wolves, we've seen ibex, even though the site's so popular. Um, you know, wonderful bird life, wonderful animal life, wonderful geology. You know, it, it's never going to be part of a, a mass tourism. Would a Kurdistan ever be somewhere for mass tourism? But it can be a place, Kurdistan, for a high-quality tourism, which often can profit the local people, ordinary people in these places, much more than the kind of mass tourism where... You know, people come and stay in grand hotel chains and get taken around by buses owned by the similar sort of people and, and so on and so forth, that, that to actually get it so that tourist money goes down. Um, Shanidar, there are these fabulous gorges around the area. Um, you can, And I've worked on a, a very different project in Jordan where now it's a, it's, it's a high-quality green tourism, ecological tourism. There's an eco-lodge where we worked in, in Jordan. People will go from the famous site of Petra and they go on a walking trip down through um, a nature park that belongs to the Royal Society for the Conservation of Nature of Jordan. They see the archaeology, they see the nature. You get local Bedouin are the guides. They're really well-informed. They've got different languages. They know the geology, the archaeology, the birds, the flowers, and so on and so forth. And it's, people will clearly pay good money for a very good experience. And, and in the end, I always think the, the best sites, I've seen ones in America and, and ones in Britain, where if you've only got half an hour or 45 minutes, you can turn up at Stonehenge or you can turn up at the Gettysburg battlefield and have a good experience. There's a visitor centre that really gives you a good sense of why the site's important. And if you've got a couple of hours, in the case of Stonehenge, you can see the visitor centre and go and look at the stones. Or at Gettysburg, you can look at the visitor centre and walk up to some famous ridge where the crux of the battle was. And then there are people who've got all day and in the case of Gettysburg, when I was there, I saw lots of school kids with backpacks and they're being taken all around the whole landscape, having a fabulous day. 
and Stonehenge is the same. People can now go around and visit the landscape. And you can just see that's what one would like to get in the end, that a Shanidar can be a great experience for those who just want to, or, or see the landscape with it as well, with people to take them around, local people. When we meet people who've, who've read anything about their past, or if you've got, I don't know, European visitors or American visitors who've read anything about archaeology, Shanidar, they know a little bit about Shanidar, and particularly they know about the flower burial. So now the... the, the, the I should say that there's a, there's a, the Directorate of Antiquities has been putting a lot of effort in recently to try to improve the infrastructure in terms of you know the parking. I mean, there's a 24-hour, 24/7 Peshmerga guard at the site um, in the reserve, but therefore improving the facilities, the you know the bathroom facilities, the picnic facilities, and so on and so forth. So all of that's being done, and within their longer plan is indeed to make a good display materials, which is the context in which both Dilshad and I thought it'd be a great idea if he could apply for the Narain Fellowship to bring him to Cambridge. I mean, he's a practicing archaeologist. He's worked with us every season. And he's a very, very good field archaeologist. He's involved in, you know, in, in, um, the, in archaeological heritage management for the Soran area. Um, so he's very experienced in different areas, different periods. But therefore, I think it'd be really good to, for him to come here to look at the kind of displays that we've got. There's a good example here at the moment in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology on a site that's very, very famous in in Britain and Europe. Uh, it's one of these early periods. It's not as early as Shanidar. It's good in the Mesolithic period. But in a way, there's very little to see. I mean, it's a waterlogged field. It's a muddy field now, if you actually should go to the place. But it's a beautiful display, which I showed to the Director General of Antiquities, and he said he could see straight away that it was just very nicely done. The way the artefacts were displayed, there were some really nice little videos of things like how they might have made fire at the time and just simple but really nicely done, sustainable. It would look good in five years' time because often, ten years' time, often the story of these things, they look great for a month and then they look tired very quickly. So getting something that can be really well-maintained, a small museum at Shanidar, um, would be good. Plus, of course materials we want I mean which is why I also want him when he's here to look at the kind I mean he's going to visit places like the Canterbury Archaeological Trust uh, because we've got colleagues who work with me there and he's visited them already but to look in detail at their outreach program how they go about working with schools our museum here has a big schools program I mean there's experience and you mentioned before there's experience in Kurdistan like this now people who have wanted to, to learn how to work best with with school so that they they know what they you know they do a bit of work for the come they come things there's materials for them to use to see materials they can get off the web about the site in arabic or kurdish you know it's a it's slow steps but i think having if we can expose dilshad he's he's, he's come to a lot of courses already on things like illicit antiquities and that sort of ad aspect of heritage management but to come and see some of the ways that these sorts of sites are displayed. There are some caves in northern England, which again are, are very, very important. It's one of the furthest points that Neanderthals and modern humans got because the ice caps, the glaciers, came right down to near Sheffield, and they're near Sheffield. So it was the furthest point you could get to as a Neanderthal or a modern human. And there are some caves there, so they're incredibly important. Again, there's not much to see in the sense of a, a massive, you know, Stonehenge sort of site, but therefore to see how, how they've been displayed really well to get across to different publics. Plus also, 
the things we've talked about, the politics of these sites in the sense of how you get across to different visitors with rather different senses of how they belong to you know, the, the, land, the, the country, the different part of the country, I mean, Kurds, Arabs, people beyond, um, all of that, how, how you display well all of those people, that why it, it is an important site for anybody in the Zagros region generally, and it's also a site that's at the core of debates about what it is that makes us human in much wider agendas. Everybody knows Shanidar Cave, and we hope the new finds will actually you know, really put it on the, the map again anyway. So that's the context in which we're really happy that he's got this fellowship, because I think he'll, he'll have a great time here talking to people, meeting people, where there's a, a sense of heritage studies here, which is interdisciplinary. So just engaging with the, the more theoretical side of presenting heritage. You know, presenting heritage is complex. The past is not simple. Presenting the past today is not simple when people want to read into it all sorts of things for good or bad. So just to see how to, to engage in those theoretical debates, then also see some examples in Britain of how people are actually trying to do it with adult groups, with school children and so on. On that note, thank you, Professor Graham Barker from Cambridge. Thank you for your time and I wish you good luck with your work. It seems fascinating. And I, I think it's something that uh, Iraqis in general need to know more about. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much for thank you very interviewing much. me.